This is an RNZ podcast. Last week, Christchurch's daily paper The Press published a story it would have been reluctant to put in the paper. Under the headline, Inclusion of Past Offending Unfair, it said the print media watchdog The Media Council had upheld three complaints about a story the press published back in March. It was about a man who was not well known who had died in an accident. And it wasn't the paper's first story about the tragedy, but this one mentioned the fact that the man was convicted for a sexual offence against a child a decade earlier. The Media Council ruled that printing this was unfair to the man's grieving family, but four out of the 11 council members considering the complaint disagreed, believing that the offending was not trivial and was newsworthy. The Media Council's principles include provision for special consideration for those suffering from trauma or grief, and a majority of the Media Council did not accept that there is a blanket obligation to publish information that's irrelevant to the main point of the story, especially if it's likely to be distressing to the family of the deceased. So does this mean then that papers should never report distressing facts about people when they die, if the person's family would likely be upset? The Media Council said no, this was a marginal case determined on individual facts. The editor of the press, Kamala Heyman, told the Media Council it was standard practice for stuff to include significant and known facts about an individual when reporting a death. Indeed, she said it would be misleading to omit such facts unless there were exceptional circumstances. And she offered as an example the case of Willie Huber, who died in August last year. Now, he was acknowledged as a pioneer of the Mount Hutt ski field, but he was also a Nazi more than 70 years earlier and an SS soldier during World War II. Kamala Heyman said his family may have believed this part of his life should not have been reported when he died, but some members of the Jewish community had urged stuff to do so because they considered the facts too important to be forgotten or omitted in the coverage. Well, this month, a much fuller account of Willie Huber's dark past has now appeared in print. Hayden Donnell takes a look at that now and asks its authors how it was done. When Willie Huber died aged 97 last year, the headline on his obituary in the Christchurch Press read, Canterbury's ski field pioneer and former Nazi soldier dies. The story was accompanied by a picture of a grinning Huber with skis slung over his shoulder. At the time, many people argued that Huber's service in a regime that carried out the worst genocide in human history should have got higher billing than his work founding Mount Hutt's ski field. But the obituary actually marked a step forward in the media's acknowledgement of Huber's military history. Looking back through the decades, most of the stories on Huber were soft-focused tributes. In 1997, the Ashburton Guardian ran the headline, A Mountain, Two Field Mice and a Dream above a story that focused heavily on Huber's bond with a pair of mice inside an alpine hut where he lived while surveying the skiing conditions on Mount Hutt. In 2014, the press labelled Huber a heartland hero in an article that praised him for winning an Iron Cross in service to what it called the German army. Those media outlets could at least offer the excuse that Huber hadn't openly acknowledged some of the more disturbing facts about his Nazi service. Not so TVNZ Sunday, which in 2017 ran a documentary titled Father of the Mountain. In it, Huber admitted to volunteering for the Waffen-SS, one of the most brutal and highly indoctrinated divisions of the Nazi forces. In the documentary, he excitedly described seeing Hitler in person like this. Yes, I saw Hitler when I was nine years old. Could you imagine? And he was smiling, looked at us, put his arm out up as he always did. Huber added that he had to give it to Hitler, who was very clever and, quote, brought Austria out of the dump. 
An estimated 65,000 Jews were murdered in Austria during World War II, and more than 125,000 more were forced to flee the country. Despite his soft spot for Hitler, Sunday described Huber as a remarkable survivor of the war. It honed in primarily on his legacy at Mount Hutt, accompanying the then 94-year-old up the mountain to record this exchange with some skiers. Hello, boys. You enjoy your skiing? Yes. You had some skiing already this morning? I have to hang on to somebody. I'm a wee bit dotly. I'm a little old man. The documentary provoked anger, with Jewish groups arguing it sanitised Huber's record and elided his potential role in wartime atrocities. Writing in the spin-off after Huber's death, New Zealand Jewish Council spokeswoman Juliet Moses asked why a Waffen-SS soldier had escaped real scrutiny from our press for so many years. What troubles me more than an unrepentant Nazi dwelling in Aotearoa is the adulatory treatment he received. Where were the probing questions about his activities, his embrace of Nazi ideology, his amends, how he got to New Zealand on a work visa? This month, North and South went some way to addressing that deficiency. Its cover story, The Nazi Who Built Mount Hutt, traces Huber's war history, putting him near the site of a civilian massacre in the French town of Oradeur sur Glane. It proves he lied in his New Zealand immigration forms, omitting his service in the Waffen-SS, which had been deemed a criminal organisation by that point. I spoke to the story's authors, military historian Andrew MacDonald and feature journalist Naomi Arnold, about how and why they carried out this investigation. Kia ora, Naomi and Andrew. Welcome to Media Watch. Thanks for having us. So congratulations on the story, first of all. It's really exhaustive. It's beautifully written. What drew you, I think it was you originally, Andrew, to the idea of investigating Willie Huber's military history? Well, I, I, um, I missed the 2017 uh, documentary program that was, was on TV, and I only saw it at the time that Mr. Huber had, had passed away. And I looked at the story that was being told around his service during the military service during the war, and I could see that even looking at the photographs, there were inconsistencies. For instance, he said he was in certain places for which he should have earned medals that you know that he didn't have in his photo frame of medals. And then secondly, you say that you were just doing this and that and the other thing, and in this very indoctrinated Waffen SS unit, maybe there's a few more questions that need to be asked here. You know, straight away, all of these alarm bells were ringing in, in, in my mind, and I, I wanted to get to the bottom of it reasonably quickly. How did the actual practical stuff play out? How did you actually end up tracking down his military record? It, it's kind of old-school journalism, really, and if you don't know the answer, find somebody who does. And it wasn't at all difficult to write away and get his service records from Bundesarchiv in Berlin, so um, another key part of, of building that picture of Mr. Huber's wartime was actually dealing with Giacomo Lichtner at uh, Victoria University. He very kindly took the, the, the skeleton, for want of a better words, of place names that Mr. Huber's division was at and compared them with an extensive database of the Holocaust, including war crimes, murder, uh, genocidal acts and so forth. So all of a sudden, we were able to very quickly build a comprehensive picture of his war service. And he would have come close to a bunch of war crimes, horrific retributions against townspeople in France. That's some of the stuff that your article details. 
Yeah, I mean, without question, he was within very close proximity to a, a number of war crimes, both on the Russian front and in France. Imagine if all of a sudden, here's a, here's a slightly chilling example, imagine all of a sudden if all of the people in the North Island disappeared, they were just gone. And then your tank crew went through that, where, where, and it had been there previously when there were several million people living and getting on there as best they could under the, under the jackboot, and then they're gone. Now, how can you not, not acknowledge that, that, that vacuum of humanity right before your eyes and 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 then there's the mass shootings and, and the graves and and the the, the the digging up and burning of corpses the covering of the tracks if you will he absolutely knew what was going on even if he personally probably didn't have a direct hand in concentration camps and the um, mobile killing squads of 1941. If uncovering this service record was a reasonably straightforward task it's hard journalism but doable journalism Yes. Why hadn't it been done earlier? Ah, well, that's, I think that's a question that you might have to ask the other journalists. But on this subject, going back a little bit into the history vaults here, I remember when I was a cadet reporter in Wellington back in the very late 1990s, and I tried to find out what had happened with the investigations into some 40 suspected Nazi war criminals who'd come to New Zealand. And I recall just running into brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. So the message I took from that at the time is people don't want to talk about this. They, they don't want to know. It's gone. It's done. It's in the past. To some extent, I think that kind of thinking also helped Mr Huber I think one of the quotes that from, from one of Naomi's interviews is, actually covers that very nicely, and that is that New Zealand kind of allowed him not to have a conscience about his war service. Naomi, you went to Methven to talk to some of the people who lived with Willie Huber, knew him pretty well. Do you think that they didn't want to talk about the past and they wanted to accept the basically kindly, jovial old man that they saw in front of them? Um, so the people I spoke to hadn't even heard about the the Wolf and SS involvement until quite recently, and by then they'd built up thirty or more years of interactions with Willie, and he was a good friend. You know, he was a um, close friend of a couple of people I'd spoken to, and then very well known in the community. When they did hear about it through the media, they were pretty outraged about the coverage that there was. That that, was... That's the interesting thing, though. When they did know, they were annoyed that people had uncovered it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, I mean, look at social media. We take all of our information from people we know and trust, and they were immediately very defensive um, about this man. And they, I mean, I guess it's almost like a closing of ranks to protect Willie and the family, obviously. I, I mean, it's not a nice thing to, to come out. You spoke to some people that were friends of his, and they said, look, why is the media concentrating so much on this Holocaust stuff and not on the two field mice that he fostered in a hut on Mount Hutt? <laughs> when he was founding the ski field. Yeah, so the mice came up over and over, and it's just it's a really interesting example, um, just for me looking back through all the stories from the 90s and things, of how something that's in one story gets picked up and then repeated over and over and over to sort of build this myth of a person. And then the story is is that um, there was these two mice that lived under a hut, up Mount Hutt, at about 2,000 metres altitude, that Willie designed and lived in when he was surveying the ski field. He was alone, so these little mice became his friends, and he named them Fairy and Mary. And one morning, a very, very cold morning, he woke up and one of them was frozen to the floor in the corner of the hut. And he was, you know, devastated. He shed tears and he took the other mouse into a sleeping bag to try and keep it warm. But that died as well. So that story has been repeated throughout 
I mean, there's, I read a book called White Gold, The History of Mount Hutt. It's, it's in a lot of the news stories about these two little mice. And people, everyone I talked to told me about these two little mice. I mean, people just latch onto these colourful details that show what an essentially good human he was, you know, and they want to share that with you and try and get you to understand that he wasn't a baddie, he was a good guy. It's a bit of a cliché phrase, but does this say something about, you know, what we call the banality of evil? People saw this really charming, jovial guy that had done really good stuff in his life and they essentially just couldn't square it. Um, yeah, so that's the, the famous uh, Hannah Arendt quote from the um, Adolf Eichmann trials in the 1960s. So actually, I've sat in on a Waffen-SS war crimes trial in Germany, and it was um, for a man called Heinrich Böder, who was a Waffen-SS hitman. And, you know, what interested me is that in front of me, I could see a man who was in his late 80s wearing warm, cuddly clothes. He was obviously in a distressing situation. But nonetheless, he um, he, he admitted having co- perpetrated the crimes. But what I saw in front of me was not a, a sneering, jeering, indoctrinated SS man at the height of his power. What I saw was an, a frail old man who was, for perhaps want of a better description, could have been you know, in, anyone's granddad. So the, the lesson I take away from that is don't judge a book by its cover. And, and, and it's possible to be a nice, old, familiar guy and actually have an altogether different past. Yeah, I do get the feeling that because he was in his early to mid-90s when that Sunday programme came out, it would be tough to go after him, you know, as hard as you just needed to, and his and his family. Um, mm. There is a journalist I know who later told me they had tried to contact them, but the newsroom disapproved So and, and didn't, didn't think they should do it. So, right. yeah, I won't say who or what or where, but... Yeah, I don't wonder if that came into it as well. You know, he was just so advanced in his age. Mm. Was there an element of narrative building by Willie Huber, though? Well, I mean, to be honest, I think reporters contacted him and he just chatted. He was quite entertaining. Like, if you see videos of him, um, there's a few promotional videos of Mount Hutt. Um, you know, he's a genial guy and reporters appeared to enjoy spending time with him. And I think he just probably just answered their questions and told them the standout moments that had he could remember from that time. Yeah, I, I, this is one to both of you, but do you think that the fact that reporters enjoyed spending time with him, do you think that that prevented journalists from really asking the tough questions, even after they found out about the fact of his military involvement? Well, I think that there's um, some lessons here for, for all journalists to take, really, and and that is when you turn up to an interview, don't get too involved with the subject. Stay objective. Keep your wits about you. Ask questions. It's very easy to um, be pally and friendly with, with subjects who want that kind of interview. And, and actually, just occasionally one comes along that um, maybe there needs to be a little bit more scrutiny on the story that they're, they're telling. I mean, I wouldn't suggest every other person out there has got a, a significant uh, immigration fraud that they're hiding up in, in service in the the SS, but nonetheless, when he admitted to at least part of that in 2016 and 2017, there doesn't seem to have been a, a whole lot of objective scrutiny of that. Isn't that so, the big failure here? That when Cameron Bennett originally from Sunday was given this information, SS, I think that he possibly was in this to tell a story about this incredible old man that's who found the seafield, yeah. and he got blindsided by this. Yeah, that's that's what it feels like to me, and I'm obviously speculating, but it does feel like they sort of went to his house and were like, oh, what's this? And Willie said, oh, 
And then I feel like they sort of scrambled, and I, I don't know this for sure, but as a reporter, that's what it feels like to me that um, they quickly had to do this because the two parts of the story, like Father of the Mountain, was the name of the piece. And then, by the way, I was, you know, I remember Hitler. <laughs> I, I saw Hitler once. You know, it was just so diametrically opposite, and, and praised Hitler, and, and yeah, and, and and he was very, you know, he, the excitement on his face as he was recalling that story, um, and. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, Andy, I'm going to flatter you here, but I'm not sure if many other people in New Zealand could have, you know, had the confidence to know what his war record said about where he was, and just in terms of your military knowledge. Yeah, uh, thank, thank you. Very kind. So maybe the Sunday show got ambushed with this information about Willie Huber's military past, but there also wasn't a lot of coverage after that information came out to sort of follow up on those disclosures, right, until now. Why didn't we apply that scrutiny to his record? Not one person out of the many hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions who watched that documentary felt strongly enough to give Immigration New Zealand a call and say, hey, are you aware that this guy disclosed to having been in the Wapen SS? It would have been a really simple matter then for immigration authorities to take a look at his paperwork and see that he'd said he was actually, he claimed in his immigration papers he was in the Austrian army and the rank he gave was a standard German army rank, not a Waffen-SS rank. So it would have been really obvious up front that he had he had told lies on his immigration entry paperwork. And that begs the question, how many more are there actually? And what are our immigration authorities actually going to do to try and find out whether there are any more who, who slipped through the net back then? Because to me, that's the next logical step. How many more did we let in and and are are any more still alive? Should we be asking them questions? And as we learned during this story, New Zealand as a nation doesn't really have the best reputation for bringing genocide heirs to to justice. So perhaps we should be walking the walk uh, in terms of a moral view on these matters. You know, it's not enough to say that we are a moral compass as a nation. I think we actually need to demonstrate that and bringing genocide heirs to justice when they come here. If if that scrutiny had been applied to him, then maybe it would have brought a measure of justice while Willie was still alive. And your story basically concludes that he never faced any kind of reckoning over what he did in World War II. Did we fail, as journalists and probably as a country, to bring a measure of justice to this situation? That's a big question. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, but I, I do understand the context in which some of that happened. I mean, it's easy to sit in an armchair and be critical. And as far as the uh, the journalism goes, well, you know, I do have some sympathy for journalists who find themselves confronted with a story unexpectedly on the spot. But nonetheless, it is their um, profession and there is an onus of responsibility to, to remain objective and where you don't have the information to go and actually seek it out and, and, and put it forward and, and test it. That's what journalism is, isn't it? That was historian Andrew MacDonald and journalist Naomi Arnold, the authors of The Nazi Who Built Mount Hutt, an article in North and South all about Willie Huber, who died in August last year. And there they were talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell.